Hey, Dante. Hey, Hannah. So we're here for another episode of I'm Living Proof, A Letter to My Younger Self. Yes, and today we're going to hear from Maddie, who titled her episode, I'm Living Proof, Navigating Through the Darkness, which is such a powerful title. Yeah, and it's a great letter where we hear from Maddie about how she was able to find her voice through the darkness of depression and find unique ways to advocate for herself. Yeah, Maddie's story is especially unique because we find out that her mother is a guidance counselor. She talks about how that aspect affects her journey. Yeah, I think, you know, even if we have a family member who's in the space, it's always good to have lessons on how to ask for help. Um, Which brings me to a reminder, we are asking our community for help um, by asking folks to submit their own letters. So if you have been listening to the show and you have your own story to share, we encourage you to go to dbsalliance.org slash I'm Living Proof to submit your own story. Please, we want to hear from you and we would love to share your story with our community. Yeah. So without further ado, should we dive into Maddie's letter? Of course. So let's hear from Maddie. Dear Maddie, I'm so proud of how far you've come. You'll see, by age 26, your life will be unrecognizable in the best way possible. Everything you feel now will shape who you become in the next nine years. Although part of you still lives within the woman I am now, there's been so much shedding, growth, insight, and peace that has come with trial and error, diagnosis, and time. I still remember how it feels to be you, in high school, battling panic attacks for weeks straight, not understanding what they are or where they're coming from. Frozen with panic in chemistry class, in dance class, in the lunchroom, in crowded spaces, anywhere too far from home or too far from hospital, just in case. I know the depression has settled in fully by now, and I have to tell you that the next year of your life and the final year in high school, it'll become worse than ever. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. By the end of December, your senior year, you'll be diagnosed with severe chronic depression by the school psychologist. You'll be put on medication with the help and support of your therapist and mother, and it will help. Your therapy sessions will remind you there's nothing wrong with you. You aren't losing touch with reality. I know it feels like that right now, but it won't last forever. I want you to know how resilient you are. You've already put up with secret mental suffering and exhaustion for a few years now, but you're still alive and kicking, and you will be at 26 too. The road after 18 won't necessarily be smooth though. There will still be relapses and setbacks. Medication changes, new therapists, life changes, but you will learn to recognize the signs and be able to get help before things get out of control again. It's not necessarily about reaching the other side, but rather learning to navigate the darkness. By 26, you'll have a system down. You'll be able to live life day to day without panicking every time you leave the house. You'll be able to get out of bed most mornings and you won't have to take so many naps to escape life for a few hours anymore. You'll make it through college with a degree. You'll land an AmeriCorps position in Chicago. You'll learn to make space for joy when everything else is working against it. I'm so happy you pushed through. There might be a lot of people along the way who don't understand, who have never been where you have in the depths of darkness, but don't let it invalidate how you're feeling. Don't be so afraid to reach out for help. In the end, 
reaching out is what will save you time and time again. There's a special power in asking someone for help, and I'm so proud that you will do it soon. There's a whole support system waiting for you on the other side of diagnosis. Family and friends who will understand, and young people in DDSA across the country who have struggled like you. It's hard to think about you suffering, but just know it won't always be like this. Things will change for the better, I promise. I am living proof. Sincerely, 26-year-old Maddie. Thank you so much for reading that letter, Maddie. Yeah, of course. You know, when we first looked at your letter, or when I first looked at your letter, um, it sounds like the first experiences that you knew something was wrong was when you were having panic attacks, right? Yeah. What was that experience like? And how did you think about it before you had your diagnosis? Yeah, um, I really first started experiencing them when I was in like seventh grade. Um, around the same time I was diagnosed with a, a thyroid disease. Um, and I think that's what had originally brought them up because that is a symptom of that. Um, but I just kind of thought I was dying to be honest. That's what it feels like. Wow. Um, and then once I hit 10th grade, I, I kind of learned to manage them. And once I stabilized my thyroid and in middle school, they settled down a bit, but um, once 10th grade came around, I started getting them really bad. Um, usually in school, like sitting in class, um, just for weeks on end, kind of, I would be terrified to go into a chemistry class was this like one specific class that I would always end up panicking in. And so then I would get nervous to go to class every day because I knew I'd be panicking. Um, and it's just a really bad cycle that, um, yeah, that I was I was dealing with, and I kind of kept it a secret for a long time because I didn't know what what it was. I had no idea. I just thought, you know, I'm I'm losing my mind or something. Um, and it really only took talking to my mom, who is a guidance counselor, for her to be like, "There's something physiologically going on here." Was there ever were there like teachers or other students or other staff at school who? Uh, was picking up on the fact that something was wrong or, or was it ignored completely? It was, I mean, pretty much invisible to everybody else around me. My panic attacks come through very internally. So mm -hmm. pretty much what happens is I sit there and mask and don't let anyone know what's happening. And I'm just sweating. <laughs> I just sweat profusely, but from an outsider's perspective, nobody would know what is happening on the inside. So I was able to keep it very much under wraps, make it look like I was acting normally. Was there something about, so it seemed like from your letter that um, you were in fact, a, or at least you tried to be an active student while you were in school. So did the panic attacks just become like normal? And you're like, all right, once I get through the panic attack, I can get through the day. or 
was it just it was it keeping you from being as active as you wanted to be? Yeah, I definitely learned how to just kind of push through them on my own. Not, I would say, in an in a healthy way. I learned that later on through therapy and and help um, with my doctors and stuff. But I kind of learned to just like grit my teeth and push through them at the time until they would pass, or until I could distract myself enough to go and throughout the school day or throughout dance class or, you know, wherever I was at the time. For you, what did it feel like to finally have a name for what you're experiencing? We're talking about in reference to the chronic depression, right? So was it more of a relief to know you were living with chronic depression or did that just raise more questions for you? I think it was definitely a relief um, at the time because I knew like something wasn't right that, you know, this is probably not how uh, a typical teenager should be feeling. Um, and so it was definitely, it was definitely a relief to hear that. I, I ended up um, at the time is what happened. We had a program in my high school within the counseling office where it was called SAP. It was called the student assistance program. And basically mm-hmm. you could like anonymously write down someone's name who you thought was dealing with some, you know, some mental struggles or issues um, and give it to the, the guidance office um, anonymously through a box. Um, and then they would, the school psychologist would call that person in and kind of evaluate them and, and go from there. And I ended up sapping myself. So I put my own name in because I was so desperate um, for help, basically, and just didn't know how to go about it, even though my mom was a guidance counselor working in that same office. And maybe that was part of the reason. Um, So I, you know, went to the school psychologist, got called in, um, and we went through a whole evaluation together. And by the end of it, she was like, yeah, this is definitely um, are showing signs and symptoms and along the lines of, of chronic depression that clearly you've been dealing with for a few years now. And it, it was a relief to know that all that time that I've been trying to like hide these symptoms and feelings that it didn't, you know, result in nothing, that it was for a reason because I was, I was, you know, struggling with depression this whole time. Would you, for the sake of our listeners, you want to delve into what chronic depression is? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, at least for me, um, the chronic aspect of it comes from basically years of either a certain state of depression, or for me, it was like, it would come in cycles. So I would, I would be depressed and show the classic like signs and symptoms of it for maybe like a few months at a time. And then I would able, I would be able to like push through it enough to get through life for six months or so and then it would just come back again um, and it was constantly doing that for probably a good four years until I was finally diagnosed pretty much throughout my whole high school career um, so that was kind of the aspect of it that, that the school psychologist and the doctor were like yes this is chronic because this is something that you've been cycling through for years now yeah. rather than just a single instance Got it. So you write, I know the depression has settled in fully by now. 
and referenced the last year of high school coming up. Did you talk to anyone about this? And was anyone in your life aware of what was happening to you at that moment? Yeah, um, basically things kind of came to a head at that point um, in, in my high school career. I was just miserable of and, and sick of putting up with just awful depression symptoms for years. Um, and I knew I'd be graduating soon and having to move on, you know, with college or whatever came after. Um, and I was like, I have to do something about this. So I, I ended up talking to my mom about it. Um, and she knew that something had been off for probably a good year. And, and she was always trying to, you know, support me and help me in any way. But I was very just not having it like I wanted to keep it a secret as much as possible and that's why we have you know never really done anything about it um but she was the one who you know suggested hey maybe you should reach out to the the counseling office at the high school because they they really do have good resources and they can help you out you know something to think about and you know her just suggesting that without forcing me to like go to the doctors or go see a therapist or something like mm -hmm. that really was like the thing that made me reach out I was like okay I've decided on my own time and through my own volition to do this and so that's really what what led me to seeking help with your mom being a guidance counselor how was mental health discussed in your household before your um, diagnosis or before she suggested that you um, go talk to someone, was it, was it a healthy conversation? Was it something that y'all discuss often? Yeah, definitely. Um, growing up, you know, mental health was always something that my mom instilled in my brother and I as something to talk about as much as we wanted to. And she always, as a parent was like, if you're ever dealing with anything, you don't need to be ashamed. And I'm always here to listen. Um, which was so helpful, even though I didn't take advantage of it as a teen because I was so like frozen and paralyzed with fear, not of the shame that comes with mental health issues because I, I had learned from a young age with the help of my mom that that was not something to be ashamed of. Just, um, I think maybe the fear of bringing those feelings to reality you know, and maybe even to a diagnosis. Um, but it was it was a huge help to to know that my mom would be supportive in whatever outcome came out of them asking for help. You write to your younger self that you felt like you were losing touch with reality. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for you? Yeah, um, I think definitely pre-diagnosis that's kind of what my mind would stick on um, was just that that feeling and that thought of am I going crazy I think that's something that all humans have have or will feel at some point in their life um, and it's definitely something that you know we're led to believe is a is a bad thing kind of in societies is losing your mind it's mm -hmm. it's a terrifying thought and that's kind of the road that my mind was going down when I was experiencing all of these symptoms is am I absolutely losing my mind am I you know losing touch with reality and that was terrifying and I think part of that fear caused me to shut down and not want to 
reach out and get help because I didn't want to be, I didn't want it to be confirmed. Oh yeah, you are losing touch with the reality. You are going crazy, you know, something like that. Yeah, was therapy um, validating that you weren't in fact losing your mind? You weren't in fact losing touch with reality? Yeah, I think that was, it was very helpful to hear from somebody else, you know, from the outside perspective, because no matter how many times you tell your own mentally ill brain, this is fine, this is normal, this is what comes with depression and anxiety, you know, these are just symptoms um, and consequences of it. Sometimes it just takes having that outside person, which, you know, at the time was my therapist to be like, hey, this is fine. Like you are not losing touch with your reality. This is just what comes with having with having a diagnosis of depression or anxiety. You know, this is a typical feeling for someone who struggles with these um, mental illnesses. Yeah, and I think I have to agree with you that it's a typical feeling for someone going through, you know, high school and puberty for the first time, even going through college you know, um, and trying to figure out life. I feel like I said, it's a lot on this podcast, but like teenage angst, and then you're going to add a mental health condition on top of that. And you kind of get thrown into uh, two new worlds at the same time. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that could be difficult to navigate for anyone. Um, and it seems like you, after you, after talking to your mom and then talking to the guidance counselor, you were able to at least start to figure out what was going on and what worked for you well, right? Yeah, definitely. That was like the beginning. You know, even though I had been struggling with depression and anxiety for years prior to my diagnosis, that was really the start of my journey in learning how to deal with it. And speaking about navigating, something that really stood out to me was the phrase, navigate the darkness. Um, So we know that a lot of self-help or advice is usually focused on getting to the other side, right? Or focusing on the good things. What made you realize that you had to learn to navigate these dark periods rather than just get through it? Yeah, that's something that I, I kind of hate about a lot of like focuses on therapy and self-help that I'm, I'm hoping people are moving away from, but I, it was always instilled in me that kind of um, like get through to the other side, like this will get better and then you won't have to deal with it anymore. That's kind of what it felt like. And I kept finding myself getting so frustrated that I would, you know, get to this good place and I, and I would think, oh, I'm through the worst of it. And then six months down the road, I would find myself not being able to get out of bed anymore, not being able to eat you know, just back into the throes of depression. And it made me realize, okay, with something like chronic depression, there's never going to be another side. You know, you're never going to get to the other side and that's it. It's always going to be this kind of lifelong cycle that you just have to, you know, for me, I reached a point in my, you know, mid early twenties when I was like, okay, this is just something I'm going to have to take care of. And I just have to learn to recognize the signs of when it gets worse. Um, And that's when I can put all my skills and all my knowledge to use to try to ease it until I can get out of it for a little bit. 
again. Yeah. Is there anything you do specifically to help you like navigate those times in your life? Yeah, I think definitely um, going through, you know, having a good support system, whether that be like your therapist um, or a support group or close friends and family, um, or even just, you know, one person that you know you can reach out to. Um, I think that has been a really important thing for me when I start recognizing those signs again, um, to reach out to that person. And for me, it's my mom to be like, Hey, I can tell something's feeling a little off. You know, I've learned to recognize the symptoms of my depression and I've physically written them down, which I think has been super helpful because then when they start happening again, instead of thinking, uh oh, what's going on? Am I losing my mind? I can look back at my list of symptoms and be like, mm, this has happened before. This this matches your your usual list. So being able to reach out to someone and be like, hey, I can already tell that these few symptoms that I'm picking up on are are the start of a depressive episode, um, and I need to do something about it. Let's talk a little bit about establishing a routine, or I think you referred to it as a system. Um, we know that this skill can be beneficial for peers living with depression or bipolar. And a lot of our, a lot of our programs and resources that we provide here at DBSA actually help people focus on getting into a a good routine or a good habit. How did you go about establishing a routine for your wellness and what advice do you have for others who are trying to establish a routine? Yeah, it's definitely something that I'm still trying to learn how to establish for myself at 26. Um, I think for a long time, I didn't think of myself as a creature of habit. I was like, oh, you know, routines are boring and those are for adults. And, you know, I don't need that because I was in college and and nothing was my day to day looked so different that I thought I didn't need that. But I have learned that. Definitely establishing like even a daily routine is so helpful for my brain, whether I like it or not, it just is beneficial to, to my mental health. Um, and I think knowing that and not fighting it, um, at an early age would have been helpful to help me establish it, it younger, um, because it does take a little while and you might have to try a few different systems in, in getting a uh, a ritual or, you know, daily, daily habits down. But once you do, it ultimately is going to just be helpful. So you heard it here. Routines are cool, no matter what your brain is telling you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Part of your letter or big part of your letter is this focus on reaching out for help, but how hard it can be to actually reach out for help. Um, and you remind your younger self, just go ahead and do that. How did you overcome your fear for asking for your fear of asking for help? Yeah, I think it was a combination of a bunch of different things. Um, I think one of them being, you know, surrounding myself with people who think and believe there is no shame in reaching out for help um, for for mental health struggles um, was a big part of it. And even with that knowledge that I had growing up and throughout my teens, it still took me to a point where I thought I couldn't go any further feeling the way I felt to reach out. Um, and so I think just you know, knowing that 
things can get worse. Um, and to reaching out earlier is always going to be beneficial in the, in the long run than waiting until the last minute to waiting until you feel desperate, you know, is never a good idea. Um, and something that I definitely wish I had done sooner. Um, just asking someone to, you know, to help, to set up doctor's appointments, to find a therapist, to do anything, you know, um, definitely something to do early on, even if you think it's not that bad, it's going to be worth it rather than waiting until you're desperate. Yeah. You talked about this a little bit, but I wanted to go into it. Um, that relapses, you mentioned relapses and setbacks. And many times we've heard that feeling well isn't necessarily a straight line or something that you're going to feel forever, right? So what do you do now to overcome setbacks and relapses that that you wished your younger self would have had the skills to do? Yeah, I think definitely, um, like we talked about before, like learning to recognize those signs um, preceding a like relapse or, or a depressive state is super important um, because it can be hard to consciously like recognize them when they're happening, especially when it's just all happening within your brain and your mind. Um, so definitely like figuring out what your triggers are, what your symptom, what your main symptoms are, you know, the small things that maybe you wouldn't otherwise notice really trying to look at um, what those small signs are so that you can kind of recognize them when they first start. And then you can turn to your support system and be like, hey, I need you to check in with me once a week, you know, something as small as that to just ask how I'm feeling or um, you need to make a doctor's appointment and discuss potentially medication changes or, you know, dietary or lifestyle changes that could right. help you get on the right track or make an emergency appointment with your therapist and say, hey, I'm recognizing these signs. What can I do um, to help stop myself from falling, falling further down? One of the big, like, inspirational parts of your letter is talking about being able to make space for joy, right? Mm -hmm. And so or at least I'm getting that beforehand while you're in your, you're experiencing these episodes of depression, you're not able to either like find joy or even notice that it's there. But now you're able to, after you've set up these routines and you, you got a diagnosis and you're reaching out um, for help when needed, you are able to make space for joy. And can you just tell us what that looks like for you now? Yeah, I think definitely, you know, as my younger self pre-diagnosis and when I was kind of keeping all of this within myself and secretive, um, it was just that my brain would latch on to that thought of like, oh, something's wrong with me, you're depressed, everything's awful, it's miserable, I hate myself, just on a constant roll. Um, but now that I'm older and I know that those are just depression thoughts they're not right. me it's not me talking to myself um I'm able to kind of um ignore those in times where I would otherwise not find joy in things if that makes sense so like you know let's say I'm at an event or even like hanging out with friends at, at a coffee shop like going to 
sip a cup of hot tea with, with friends and chat. That's something previously that I would have just completely not, you know, I would have taken for granted because the whole time I would have been thinking, oh, you're, you're terrible. Your friends don't really like you. Nothing, nothing's going right. But now I'm able to kind of compartmentalize those feelings and try to focus on being in the present in those specific times. Um, and that's kind of what I mean by making space for joys. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, separating yourself and what you're doing in the present moment with those depressive thoughts that are always turning through your head. Um, kind of separating and compartmentalizing them, being like, I can still find moments of happiness within my life, um, even when it feels like those thoughts, those depression and anxiety thoughts are taking over, you know. I can say those are just the thoughts that are coming into my brain right now. And I'm going to choose to ignore them for a little bit so that I can enjoy what's happening at the present moment. When you talk about, you, and you kind of talked about it just now in your answer, when you talk about that suffering and silence or dealing with the intrusive thoughts or the you know, thoughts of being in a depressive state, what advice would you give to a student or, or someone um, who was in young Maddie's? Um, place about living in that state and, and getting through it or how they should deal with it? Yeah, um, definitely one of the biggest things that, you know, I've kept with me in my early days of therapy after being diagnosed with depression is that you are not your thoughts. And it seems kind of simple. And, you know, I feel like a lot of people have heard that before. But to really take that to heart so that when those you know, intrusive thoughts or self-deprecating thoughts or anything like that are coming into your brain, and even for panic attacks, I think this was really helpful for me. Instead of thinking, oh my gosh, I'm dying, I'm having a heart attack, uh, you know, I'm not close to a hospital, like they're not going to be able to save me, like these just you know, totally irrational thoughts, being able to think, okay, this is not me. This is my mental illness talking. And I have to just separate that, you know, this is not who I am as a person. It's just a disorder that I'm dealing with that puts thoughts into my brain. Um, and I think I, that's something really important that um, I feel like should be kind of discussed with, with people at, from a very young age that you know, you are not your thoughts. Thoughts are just, you know, part of the inner workings of your brain. Um, and they, they don't have to have meaning attached to them. I think that's, that's really important for mental health. Let's talk a little bit about naps. I love a good nap. But in your letter, you talk about using naps to escape part of the day, right? When did you recognize that you were doing that? And, and what did you do? in order to face those realities instead of, you know, napping through it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was one of my, probably the biggest coping mechanism I had throughout high school. I would literally, you know, wake up at whatever, 6.30 in the morning, get to school, the bell rang by eight, spend seven hours in school. And as soon as I got home, I would just race to my bed and, lay down and pass out for like four hours and then wake up to eat dinner, do homework, 
go right back to bed because, you know, sleeping was my main way of escaping those panicked and depressive feelings and thoughts that I was battling all day long. And it was exhausting. And I was trying to seek anything I could do to shut them down for a little bit. And napping was that thing. And I actually didn't even realize that it was a problem until my mom came to me and was like, you have got to stop, you know, ignoring life by coming home and, and falling asleep for hours at a time, you know, snaps seem like they're so harmless and, and innocent until you realize you're doing them to avoid life. And that's kind of, you know, what it came down to. My mom's like, we've got to try to get you in the system to stop doing that because it just isn't beneficial when it comes to mental health for me at that time. Yeah. It sounds like, I hope mom listens to this podcast podcast mm-hmm. because it seems like she was there. She recognized um, some of the early symptoms or signs and tried to get you the help that at least how she, the best way she knew how, right? Yeah. yeah. What would, what advice would you give to a parent in a similar situation that your mom was like, what was the most helpful thing that your mom did that you wish other parents would do it in that situation? Yeah, I think definitely um, one of the biggest things would just be, you know, not forcing anything upon your child, you know, like, I feel like it was probably very clear to my mom, especially in the later years of high school that I was dealing with depression and anxiety. Um, I mean, she's a mental health professional. She knows the signs and symptoms, but it was never, I'm going to hospitalize you against your will. It was never, you're going to choke down these medications, whether you like it or not. You know, she knew not to do that because that never ends up well, typically for for people who struggle with mental illness. Um, And so the biggest thing for me, which was probably very difficult for her as a parent, was trying to just support me and letting me find my own way to to getting help. Um, It's not easy, I'm sure, to watch somebody struggling with severe mental health issues, but um, just being there and knowing that you're there to support them in any way possible, helping to remind them of, you know, certain things of, of their habits. Like my mom was just, you know, there to remind me, hey, I've noticed you're taking a lot of naps. You know, that's something you need to look out for. She wasn't saying, you know, oh my gosh, you have this huge issue. I'm going to watch your every move when you come home from school and make sure you're not doing these things. That would have just, you know, pushing me away from reaching out and, and seeking help. So I think it's definitely important for her to give me that space to find it on my own. Yeah. And just kind of guide you, give you little nudges along the way, rather than, like you said, saying, okay, well, you're going to go talk to someone. You're going to start this treatment plan. You're going to do this. Going along the journey with you yes. rather than um, pushing you towards the things she may have thought was right at the time. Exactly. Yeah. And it may have taken longer because, you know, I was doing things on my own time, but in the end, I wasn't traumatized, uh, you know, in finding my diagnosis and in going to therapy because I wasn't forced into it. I did it um, on my own volition. 
Before we let you go, Maddie, is there a favorite wellness practice that you do that you would like to share um, with our audience? Yeah. um, So my favorite wellness practice, um, a tried and true method that a lot of people probably also have is journaling. Um, And it's something that I always forget how helpful it is until I start it back up again. Um, But just taking the time every evening before I go to sleep um, or in the mornings when I wake up to just write down everything that's on my mind or going through my brain to get it out on paper. It's always helpful. It's never been a detriment to me. So definitely just getting a journal and writing, writing stuff down, even when it feels silly. It's always helpful. Yeah, and my co-host uh, Hannah is an avid advocate of journaling. So yes, if it you does journal, yes, please please find time to journal. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Maddie. Yeah, thank you.